0: Welcome to you all. I'm very pleased to be joined by Scott Lindsekamp from the Cato Institute in Washington DC. He and I are going to have a conversation about industrial policy in America. Scott is a senior fellow in economic studies at Cato and before rejoining Cato last year he was a trade lawyer for two decades at White and Case. Earlier this year, he published a great study on the revival of industrial policy in America and the resurging industrial protectionism that we have seen, not just in America but elsewhere too. But he was also discussing in this paper how security policy often gets weaved into the politics of industry in Washington. In recent months, there has also been growing, a growing conversation in America about the role of industrial policy for President Biden's plan for greening the economy and boosting infrastructure spending. And last week, President Biden also reconfirmed his administration's anxieties about trade in public procurement. In a speech about the U.S. Jobs Plan to the joint session of the U.S. Congress, the President said, and I quote, all the investments in the American Jobs Plan will be guided by one principle, buy American. American tax dollars are going to be used to buy American products made in America that create American jobs, the way it should be. End of quote. So, Scott, there's a lot of talk about here. And first of all, I would like to thank you for joining this conversation. And, and second. I think we need some help to decipher where industrial policy in America is going and what is all going to be about. So if we start from there, is there a revival of industrial policy underway in the United States?
1: Uh, yeah, I think, I think most definitely there is. And as you noted, I think part of the reason is less economic and far more related to national security and China. I think the, the China question or the China threat looms large over the resurgent in U.S. industrial policy, because if you look at the arguments of industrial policy advocates in the United States, which I think now you can find them on the left, on the right, Republicans, Democrats, both presidents, Trump and Biden, you'll see that quite often they will acknowledge the economic downsides related to efficiency productivity, specialization, all of this stuff, you know, Econ 101 stuff. And they will acknowledge those, but say that those downsides are nevertheless worth it because it is absolutely necessary for economic security, for national security, for resiliency reasons to that we engage in industrial policy. And again, I think the other big issue is the pandemic that The simple sight of empty store shelves in the United States, even though they were actually quite temporary, jolted a lot of politicians and voters into thinking, aha, we need to reshore everything, PPE uh, and other medical goods, uh, semiconductors, you know, due to the current chip shortage. And uh, you name it, and that the the knee jerk response there is aha, we need to reshore all of this, and that's again where where industrial policy comes to play. So, I, if you look at the bills in Congress, they are that are advocating industrial policy, whether it's semiconductor subsidies or buy American policies or PPE reshoring. They are bipartisan. This is unfortunately, one area of rare bipartisan consensus in the United States right now that um, there's going to be a resurgence in industrial
0: policy. So if we start to unpack that a little bit and perhaps go into the specifics of industrial policy in the United States, I think I mean many European observers are probably going to say that, or they're probably going to think about, you know, Alexander Hamilton and his report on the manufacturers if we talk about industrial policy in America. That's basically sort of an infant industry type of argument that has been pretty strong in American economic history. It's been had its ups and downs, but it's it's an argument that you've seen resurfacing every now and then. Here in Europe, I think many people, when we talk about industrial policy, they would think about developments in Britain, France, and Germany in the 1960s and the 1970s. You know, when industrial policy was a bit more activist, they were supporting firms by giving financial support to them and were hoping that this was going to spur business growth and competitiveness. So it's basically a picking winners type of strategy, right? So how much do you find that type of industrial policy in America? Is is this also what you are discussing or is it something else that is on the agenda in the United States?
1: That's a great question because, um, actually as I'm writing in a new paper, one of the big problems in the current debate over industrial policy in the United States is that the term has almost lost all meaning because it, it really, it means anything from basic research funding. So, you know, we give a billion dollars to the National Science Foundation or the National Institute of Health, all the way over to steel tariffs, or something that is just classic protectionist industrial policy. And the problem, of course, I think, is that there's a pretty clear delineation between what we consider to be traditional industrial policy, which goes more toward the steel tariff sides of things, less toward the basic research side. And yet, those all of these policies are getting grouped together. And so when We could and should be having, I think, a a good discussion about should the United States be providing more funding for basic research versus should the United States be subsidizing semiconductor fabs? Unfortunately, that all gets grouped together. And as a result, it's kind of a kitchen sink approach to, quote unquote, industrial policy with a lot of stuff that, I mean, even, you know, I'm a libertarian, of course, even I could accept uh, a lot of the policies that are being offered. But the problem is, of course, they're being packaged with Buy American rules for green energy. And I mentioned semiconductor subsidies, PPE restrictions, and Buy American rules for PPE, and sorts of things that, that I really, you're not going <laughs> to, for a lot of reasons, economic security principles, you name it, just simply, you know, can't abide. And I don't think that, the debate has been well framed at this point. And I think it's necessary to do a better job of that as we go forward or else we're just getting kind of again this kitchen sink approach to everything under the sun.
0: Yeah. And how would you describe the balance between these different type of policies then? So if we if we start with, say, Biden and his administration, is it a sort of a type of industrial policy which is more on the trade side of things or do you, do you think it's more about you know direct funding of different enterprises or different entrepreneurial purposes like you know green tech or whatever
1: yeah it's it it appears to be both actually um if you look at the policies that they're putting forward um some of them are very classic trade related industrial policy So, for example, the steel and aluminum tariffs that President Trump imposed were recently praised by Biden's Commerce Secretary as being effective and uh, helping to nurture or at least stabilize the domestic metals industry. At the same time, all of the proposals for infrastructure, for, you know, green energy and the rest have these Buy American restrictions that are attached. And so there's certainly, I think, again, that's very kind of classic trade-related industrial policy. At the same time, they seem also to be quite interested in subsidies for new innovation, but but not basic research. So putting together things similar to the Obama administration did related to Department of Energy loan programs, and certainly more support work for manufacturing on the kind of subsidy side beyond just semiconductors hundreds of millions of dollars in the in the proposal going to kind of manufacturing support so i think it's a bit of both and then again i think they also throw in all that basic research stuff that that i would like to kind of segment off and segregate from the rest of the discussion
0: now the the talk about buy american of course has raised alarm across the world. Stories coming out of Brussels today suggesting that uh, they are now advancing plans for what they call an international procurement initiative, which of course is something which is going to be there to get reciprocity in 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 procurement. And given developments right now, we mean we know that this reciprocity basically means that we're all going to sort of take down the degree of openness when it comes to government procurement. So but my question on this issue is basically so how far is this sort of buy American demand or preference going? So, I mean, assume now you're going to spend lots of money on uh, restoring American infrastructure. So why, what does buy American actually mean there? Does it mean yep. that you, you need to have sort of a, a domestic supply that takes care of everything? Does it mean you need to stop importing inputs and components, the metals, the raw materials that you would yep. use? So how far does this obligation to buy America actually go?
1: Yeah, it it depends on the product, and we will you know not to, to be a lawyer for a second again, but we'll need to see the law and the regulations before we can make definitive conclusions. But I can give you an example of what I mean when I say it depends on the product. In the 2009 stimulus package and subsequent Buy American actions, the U.S. steel industry—it's always always the steel industry—successfully inserted a melted and poured standard into the bi-American language, which essentially means that the steel used in these U.S. projects not only had to be produced in the United States, but actually had to be melted and poured here, which excludes a lot of steel makers that say import semi-finished goods from Brazil or wherever, slab and the rest. Now, that is extremely onerous. Other, and it caused all sorts of problems in the implementation of the the 2009 stimulus package, because it's very difficult to manage your supply chain in that way. You had a lot of US companies ending up excluded from being able to participate in the federal procurement and the rest. Now, outside of that, it's a little more lenient. Right now, there are still content requirements. And of course, you can get waivers, for if you can't for example supply or source a certain product at a certain price uh, domestically you can get a waiver but the key is that Biden has already indicated that he wants to tighten those loopholes and so it could very well be that some of the past leniency on buy american rules disappear this time around if the Biden administration uh, tightens these loopholes so it is unfortunately a bit of a wait and see on that but i I think i think we can rest assured that the steel industry is going to get what it wants once again
0: yeah that seems like a safe bet they're always going to land on their feet it seems so let's move to trade policy in the industrial component or industrial policy part of the trade policy so what's your expectation for this administration when it comes to trade policy we i mean we come out of the trump Era with lots of different contingency measures that have been taken on sort of yep. steel and aluminum to mention just sort of two of these particular goods You have the trade friction sort of the trade wars with with China. We have the tariffs that are still in place between Europe and America uh, that followed on the Boeing Airbus cases. Now, President Biden declared that America is back uh, on the international scene when he's assumed power. So what, what does that mean in international trade policy and sort right. of for how America plans to use trade policy to advance its own commercial goals?
1: Right. I think the way that I would describe it is Trump-lite. I think that at least looking at their actions so far and where things tend to be moving, I would not expect a really significant change in U.S. trade policy, at least for the first year or two. And so, you know, I think what we might see is a modest relaxation of tariffs on close allies. So, for example, metals tariffs on steel from, uh, you know, from the EU, maybe from Japan and others that, that are, again, close allies of the United States, but not a wholesale lifting of those metals tariffs. At the same time, I think the China tariffs are staying pending some sort of major and of course, well-publicized deal with the Chinese, which I don't think is coming anytime soon. And so I think that that is going to be status quo. Boeing Airbus, well, you know, and and Boeing Airbus, as you know, is, is quite different, being that it's a WTO dispute. And it does appear that both sides want to resolve that. But, you know, civil aircraft subsidies are a sticky wicket. And I I don't, I just, that I think is much more going to be about the substance of the deal, right? Not geopolitics or domestic politics. That'll be much more related to whatever aircraft subsidies deal they can come up with. But outside of that, I don't expect any serious changes. You know, here in North America, of course, we have the USMCA, the NAFTA, to deal with. Important to note that ustr tie so Biden's USTR, was the primary author of some of the most onerous terms of the USMCA that congressional Democrats inserted right before it was implemented. So these relate to labor and environmental rules and the potential to block trade, particularly with Mexico, related to, to the labor and environmental concerns. I also expect strict enforcement of the rules of origin provisions that are in the USMCA, which, again, are very restrictive, uh, really straight up protectionist in many ways. And and I don't foresee much change there. Where I think Biden will actually be different will be at, at the WTO. I would expect them to be more engaged and slowly but surely getting the WTO back up and running again. You know, we saw a bit of a fig leaf in uh, finally letting them have a new DG, Director General, that was good. But appellate body crisis still isn't resolved, so they don't appear to be moving quickly. And then on international agreements, I don't expect anything there in the near term. Perhaps in a year or two, once COVID is knock on wood behind us, once the U.S. economy is stabilized, maybe then you might see efforts to Uh, re-engage on something like TTIP or the CPTPP, formerly the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but certainly not in the near term. There just appears to be no political will there at all. And I think that gets to the bigger point, is that even though Democratic voters have moved strongly towards the pro-trade position, Democratic politicians have not. They still have that muscle memory from the 19 90s and 2000s, and of course, strong political support for unions, environmental lobby, and the rest, that they really do see, and I think they see political value in terms of kind of peeling off Trump voters as well. And because of that, there just doesn't appear to be much political momentum in the Democratic Party towards free trade positions. And so I think we'll see much more, again, kind of a continuation of Trump-ish policies just with a little better rhetoric and maybe some nicer relations with the WTO.
0: <laughs> We're soon going to move on to issues around um, security and other motivations for industrial policy. But let me just serve a quick follow-up on the trade side of it. President Trump threatened to pull America out of the government procurement agreement. Do you think there's any discussion going on along those lines in this administration?
1: Yeah, I haven't seen... Any discussions along those lines, I would be I would be very surprised if the Biden administration simply pulled out because of the the kind of geopolitical impact that would have. Right. This this administration, as you mentioned, really is trying to project this image of being a force for good in the world, a diplomatic ally, all that kind of stuff. I think withdrawing from the GPA would be a pretty huge strike there. but. I I wouldn't be surprised at all to see an attempt to to renegotiate some of the terms and tighten as you mentioned some of the some of the rules to as you noted achieve reciprocity whatever you know that means really but you know I also think that there is an acknowledgement among the US business community and in in Congress that the US also benefits from GPA membership U.S. companies are very much involved in procurement around the world, and that the last time we violated our GPA commitments, there was a price to pay, and so hopefully that will continue to be the case.
0: So let's talk about motivations for industrial policy and also go into issues about security and sort of how that gets weaved into broader commercial policies in America, but I'd like to start with sort of a more of a view perhaps from europe than from america itself i mean industrial policy happens everywhere in the world and when you're watching developments outside your own territory you think you are sort of living in a parallel world where the the discussion that there it's totally alien to the discussion that takes place in your own country so so the european discussion right now is you know to summarize it very much driven by an anxiety of American commercial superiority. It is sort of the fear that the technological innovation development in America is just steamrolling uh, European businesses. You can sometimes perhaps throw in some developments that take place in China or other Asian countries as well, but it's predominantly a European anxiety that America is basically going to rule the commercial world in the future. So you have the tech, you have, you know, the GAFA companies, and you also have sort of lots of things going on on energy and green technology. So, I mean, so this makes it sort of quite difficult to comprehend for a European, why on earth are you talking about industrial policy in America? Aren't you already winning?
1: Look, I, I agree with them. You know, as I wrote, the idea that the United States is uh, losing the, this global competition it strikes me as preposterous, but here we are. I actually, since you mentioned that, please send me a few op-eds. I can circulate on Twitter to show everybody you know, how much Europe is worried about US domination. That would actually be quite useful for me. But more seriously, I think, again, Europe is not the focus of US industrial policy concerns. It is all China. China and the pandemic. The conventional wisdom in the United States right now, rightly or as I believe wrongly, is that decades of government inaction have caused the United States to slip, particularly in manufacturing, but just in terms of overall investment, R&D, innovation, and the rest. And that decades of Chinese government intervention have caused China to rapidly advance and that China's trajectory is one that will overtake the United States by say 2030. And look, I think that there are there is nuggets of truth in this. There's no doubt that the the Chinese have been spending a lot of money, that the, you know, Chinese industrial policy, particularly since Made in China 2025 came around, has really become far more activist interventionist and and public you know Chinese policymakers openly talking about global domination in certain sectors that that's certain to raise some some concerns and there have been some Chinese successes in whether it's you know 5G technology or electric vehicles now again i think that misses a lot i think it gives far too much credit to the successes and ignores the failures and it it ignores some potential concerns with China's economic trajectory, whether it's demographics or productivity, crackdown on private business, growth of state-owned enterprises, I could go on, right? But regardless, perception is reality in politics, right? And the perception is that if the unless the United States subsidizes, protects, and does the rest with industrial policy, we are going to be left behind and that we will be ceding global economic dominance to uh, authoritarian Chinese government. And so, you know, again, and then uh, that then then the pandemic again, as I mentioned, really does hit at simple basic economic insecurities for the American public. And I think for policymakers as well, that and, and, I, and you hear it in the rhetoric still, even though, as I just wrote a, a month or so ago, supply chains actually adapted quite well, probably as well as we could possibly have expected. Shortages were short-lived, but it doesn't matter. The mindset remains in kind of an April 2020 mindset. Empty store shelves, shortages of PPE and the rest, and that will continue to kind of push the conventional wisdom in Washington that we need more activist policy.
0: So if we unpack that a little bit for a um, sort of a european audience so what what are we talking about here is it sort of an anxiety about sort of a declining manufacturing base that america doesn't have the capacity to produce what right. it needs what it needs sort of what it consumes or is it more about you know anxieties about not having strategic technologies that china or anyone else may Beat America to developing sort of the best vaccine or the new technology that is going to solve climate change, or is it both
1: yeah, I mean I think it's both, but more the latter, so certainly this the narrative of American deindustrialization is pretty rampant in politics, but when you listen to the actual advocates for these policies it's much more about strategic dominance and seeding the playing field, seeding ground to China on AI, 5G, green energy products and electric vehicles, and also about resource dependence or supply dependence. Very prominent in these discussions is what if China cut us off from rare earth minerals or, again, PPE and these products. Now, the economist and historian would note that past efforts to do this weren't ha- weren't very successful, for example, with rare earths, and that, again, industrial capabilities in the United States are quite strong and have proved to be quite adaptive and flexible and resilient, but sometimes reality doesn't matter too much. And I do think, to concede a bit, is look, there's no doubt that that China has made great strides in terms of climbing the economic ladder from kind of low low cost low margin manufacturers to higher at, uh, you know higher tech uh, stuff and particularly in in AI for example but you know that i think that view tends to ignore that we're doing pretty well too without you know becoming china to beat china
0: so where is the discussion now on the broader sort of a security policy component of industrial policy so i mean dependency on china or for that matter the world can of course be interpreted as being sort of a a strategic weakness on the part of america you cannot supply the country with what it needs in the event of war or whatever but then america of course has been spending quite a lot of money on the military industry and developing sort of technologies that have been used for much more specific security purposes we have, well, at least on the part of some, um, this romantic vision of um, sort of the American entrepreneurial state, that investment by the Department of Defense, DARPA and others sort of created the Internet or created Apple or created Google, and that many of these business successes basically come down to the success of bureaucrats of so picking winners and especially picking technologies that you need. So where is the American discussion on on this point right now? Is the new administration going to advance this? I mean, President Trump raised defense spending quite substantially, and I suppose with that came also a lot of money for uh, security technology uh, development. So where is America now? Yeah, I mean,
1: Democrats tend to be less interested in defense spending than Republicans, but not by a lot, at least not by libertarian standards, of course. But I think the issue there is less about strict defense-related goods and instead about the expansion of the universe of national security-related products to a lot of things that don't have a clear and direct national security nexus. And the big example there is semiconductors. It is constantly discussed in the United States that The United States must subsidize our domestic semiconductor manufacturing capabilities because of national security concerns and that this is not about commercial economic issues. It is about security policy. And there are I think rare earths is another example of that as well. So really extending beyond and this, let's face it, it started with President Trump and the metals tariffs were, again, national security tariffs. Right. And so there are some problems with that, that, for example, in the chip space, it's actually a a different supply chain for the chips we use for laser guided missiles and all that type of stuff compared to the commodity chips that are now in shortage that we need for automobiles. Doesn't matter. For a lot of policymakers, including in the Biden administration, there is a clear security nexus in these and a few other goods. Biden issued an executive order early on. On a supply chain review, uh, another area of pharmaceuticals, that's another area that, that is now couched in national security grounds, never mind the amazing vaccines we're producing and, and churning out at this point, you know, never mind that apparently that's a national security threat too. So certainly there is that going on. And then you mentioned one other aspect and I now I lost, lost it, but was there another part of that that you wanted me to address? I mean, I, th-
0: I think not just Europeans, but other parts of the world sometimes look in awe to America when it comes to, or at least they suggest, and as I said, this is, I think, a pretty romantic vision of it or version of it, but they suggest basically that strategic government wow. investments basically created the technology that businesses are yeah. prospering on the back of, and which also seems to me to be one element of the conversation about industrial policy in America too.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And I—that that is a very consistent argument from the current crop of industrial policy advocates. And this goes back to my problem with a lot of the industrial policy debate in the United States. And I don't think it's just in the United States. I think it's happening in Europe and elsewhere as well. And that is that anything that is touched by government policy, no matter how remote, no matter how long ago, no matter how many other steps in the chain, is attributed to government. And you mentioned the internet, Google, Apple, the iPhone, you name it. I actually, in my paper that I'm writing now, I have a list of them. You would, it's basically everything. Everything ever invented, we thank government. The problem, of course, is that when you get in the weeds of these things, you realize that this in no way can be properly construed as industrial policy you know, take the internet, for example. So yes, of course, the government was involved in the creation of the internet, but some of these foundational technologies were not even, they were unintentional. They were invented by some guys that were on a university grant funded by the government, and they actually, in their spare time, created some of the the technology needed, and that ended up providing part of the backbone for the internet. So You know, industrial policy is supposed to have this this strategic plan. The government says we need to do X. They then fund people to do X. And then, of course, there's a commercial aspect to that. It is to be commercialized. So, again, to the extent that the government comes across a certain technology because we're making fighter jets that really is not industrial policy. It is not attempting to beat the market to achieve these wonderful spillovers and positive externalities and all of that. It's actually simply a byproduct of traditional government defense spending. And unfortunately, again, there's no distinction now. And you hear that a lot in all of these arguments for commercial classic industrial policy. I hate to keep using semiconductors, but it's very much in the press. Again, we need to build commercial semiconductor fabs because of, again, some government grant 30 years ago that led to some technology that was used in the internet, right? And and that argument is is quite common, unfortunately, but it's a a necessary, I think, to push back on that, to say, look, when you look at the classic industrial policies we've implemented, Classic industrial policies like buy American rules, semiconductor, We've you know, we've had semiconductor subsidies in the past and protectionism as well. These things did not work very well and it's really necessary to talk about those policies instead of, again, these kind of broader visions of an industrial policy that means anything government ever touched.
0: Let's come back to that very soon, Scott, on looking sort of at... Um... What we know about the effectiveness or lack thereof of industrial policies. But one more question sort of on industrial policy or perhaps the nexus of industrial policy and trade protection or protectionism more generally. So if we take the European situation right now, and I'm going to ask you what what the discussion in America is here. So. Perhaps the strongest source for industrial policy and and trade protection right now comes from climate change policies. So we want to invest a lot more money into the economy in order to improve technologies, to innovate, and uh, and so on. We're raising the cost of carbon emission, which means that the competitiveness of some firms are well, if not at risk, so at least they're exposed in a sense that they have a cost development to accommodate that that is different to the one they had in the past. And as a consequence of that, we are now talking about where we're going to introduce carbon border taxes, or to use a more sort of euphemistic term, which is carbon border adjustment mechanism, which of course is just a border tax. So to what extent is this fueling the debate around industrial policy and trade protection in America that... You may now start to take on costs and policies for reducing carbon emission as a consequence of that. You need to have more government money being sprinkled on firms and you need more trade protection. Yeah, I think that's very, very much part of the discussion
1: right now. You know, of course, with the Democratic Party in charge, there is going to be much more focus on climate change and environmental technologies and as you noted very similarly there are discussions of the need for carbon tariffs border adjustments in the far lands and the need for by american rules and subsidies to ensure i don't think as much to ensure the products are produced but ensure there's political political support for the policies themselves and that's where i think the difference is it, you know certainly in the public rhetoric, these policies are on economic grounds, right? That, you know, we need border adjustments because of carbon leakage and, you know, competitiveness concerns. We need by American rules so that we have a sophisticated workforce, to, you know, to do this. But I think when you start talking more to advocates, they, they acknowledge that it's actually much more a political argument. That to get business and unions and other groups on board, well, you need to kind of buy them off. And you buy them off with, by American rules and subsidies and border adjustments, economics aside. And that's, I do think, going to be a prominent part of this debate, which I, you know, again, I think is unfortunate because we, we do have... First of all, there's no discussion of freer trade in environmental goods, which obviously is good in terms of seeing the proliferation of these technologies, right? If you want solar panels, well, you want free trade in solar panels, right? But beyond that, look, we know that the implementation of these policies in the past can actually have adverse environmental consequences. For example, we have by American rules in place for urban transit, for bus transportation. Well, a study from a few years ago shows that that actually led to not just more expensive buses, but dirtier buses, so less environmentally friendly buses and fewer bus routes so discouraging public transportation encouraging use of automobiles so actually discouraging these kind of environmental benefits we want and that there is a potential there that 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 will happen again but unfortunately it's not part of the political dialogue
0: all right so let's move on to the effects or the effectiveness of industrial policy i mean this is something that you cover also in Your paper from earlier this year. So let's talk about that that a little bit. So, what do we know and what don't we know about the effectiveness of, of industrial policy?
1: Yeah, I think we know that traditional, particularly trade related industrial policy, has been a pretty spectacular failure in the past. Surely you can find exceptions, but the general rule is that when the US government decides to protect sectors via tariffs, quotas, or by American rules, or even tries to just simply subsidize a sector to global competitiveness, it tends to go pretty badly. And we have lots of examples of that. You know, digging back into the history books, you can look at what we did with semiconductors. You know, in the 1980s, we decided that DRAMs, uh, dynamic random access memory chips, were the future We protected that product and uh, entered into an agreement with the Japanese that actually had all sorts of unintended consequences. It ended up, of course, causing DRAM prices to increase. But beyond that, it ended up pushing much of the U.S. computer industry offshore. It caused all sorts of distortions in Japan, actually boosting the Japanese industry through quota rents. It boosted the South Korean industry, which was outside of the agreement, leading to globally dominant Samsung and, and Hynix as well. And it actually discouraged investment in the United States. Now, the, the kicker is that we picked the wrong product that U.S. semiconductor producers were actually moving away from DRAMs at the time. They were moving towards other more sophisticated chips. And so it's really just a classic example of all of the things we warn about industrial policy, you know, knowledge problem issues, public choice issues. There was a lot of cronyism and political, uh, I wouldn't call it corruption, but the reason these things were put in place was through a lot of lobbying and and all sorts of unintended consequences. We of course have other examples with steel tariffs just recently imposed those have caused all sorts of problems, harming the manufacturing sector, even harming a lot of steel companies that use imported semi-finished goods. The Jones Act here is a notorious example. 100 years of shipping restrictions caused the slow but steady degradation of our merchant marine and our shipbuilding industry that now is just wholly uncompetitive. You can go on and on. And so if you look at these industries, the, the, the lesson again and again is that trade-related industrial policies in the United States not only impose all these high costs on consumers and on other manufacturers, but actually don't end up producing kind of a lean and mean and innovative industry. And in fact, U.S. Steel just last week announced that it was uh, pulling an investment to upgrade facilities in Pennsylvania and said it was just going to profit take due to record high steel prices, which is, of course, what the textbooks tell us is going to happen. So outside of that space, you know, there are actually a, a lot of, I think, other examples of how these industrial policies can go wrong. Whether it's a cylindra, which of course is a famous solar producer in the United States that received hundreds of millions of dollars in, in uh, government loan guarantees and was just an absolute disaster in terms of uh, never producing anything and being all sorts of you know political corruption and the rest but there are lots of other cylindras out there that we don't know or hear about Um, and overall efficacy of these programs has has shown to be a high cost with large budgetary overruns, and then all sorts of unintended consequences that, yeah, might produce one success, but but also a lot of failures as well. And then with all of these kind of knock-on effects that really don't show that it was it was worth doing, unless you just take comics out of it and then say, oh, for security reasons, we need this. And, and that's why I think there is a security focus. I think that Industrial policy advocates understand in the United States that relying solely on economics and empirical analysis is not going to win the day. So you have to push to a more subjective view of simply forget efficiency, forget unintended consequences, forget even costs. It is about strategic issues. It's about China and domestic resilience, not economics.
0: But isn't there sort of a perhaps more of a macro version, at least an economic case that has been made for industrial policy right now what i'm thinking about here is basically you have a a pretty vibrant debate in america and you had it for quite some time suggesting that you know the american industrial base have been hollowed out that you are confronted with uh, not just china but other countries that subsidize their production you have unfair competition between american firms and foreign firms and as a consequence of that you do need some degree of industrial policy just to level the playing field with the rest of the world so i mean sort of is there any truth in you think in in that argument that sort of unfair competition from abroad has sort of led to not perhaps a case for industrial policy but at least that there is some economics evidence suggesting that in some sectors in some industries that america the american decline has been sharper than it should have been
1: right yeah and i i think surely that there is there's no doubt that government subsidies can distort markets, government subsidies abroad can distort markets here and cause uh, acute pain for certain manufacturers. Certainly Chinese import competition over the last 20 years here in the United States has caused disruption and displacement. And I think there's a political economy argument to, to not simply accepting subsidies as well they're good for us right because i think the kind of traditional libertarian free market argument is that subsidies abroad are great that if china wants to manipulate its currency it's essentially subsidizing american consumption we should cheer that i think that ignores the political economy that that this will cause american companies workers producers to no longer support the global trading system more broadly and will cause a pushback but the counter argument to those claims is a is a few things. First, we have, of course, a very robust trade remedies regime here in the United States, anti-dumping and countervailing duty, anti-subsidy measures that allow domestic companies to petition the government and receive uh, remedial duties. Right. And we have 600 of those uh, duty orders now in place, primarily against China. A lot of iron and steel. Big surprise. So there is a mechanism already in place that allows for producers to say, hey, I'm being injured and I want protection from dumping or or subsidization. The second argument that I think is more kind of a classic kind of economics argument is two wrongs don't make a right. That just because there is one distortion, the solution is not to add another distortion that we know again from lots of history and the textbooks, of course, that tariffs and subsidies uh, cause more problems than they, they solve. And so we should be hesitant to go down that road, even again, granting the political economy arguments. But uh, you know, look, I'm, I have no problem with global anti-subsidy rules. I have no problem with updating them at the WTO to improve coverage but we need to acknowledge that we have these mechanisms already in place that it is not the wild west and that the united states is a frequent user and quite frankly abuser of these trade remedy rules
0: you have some fascinating graphs and charts in your paper which i think also is providing some counterarguments to that particular view which is that when you look at not at sort of industrial output but on industrial jobs some extent in industrial output you can see sort of that there's a similar development in most advanced western economies in the sense that the share of the labor force that is working in these sectors have been declining for a long period of time and the main reason for it may not actually be that we are substituting domestic production with with imports Uh, it, it may be sort of technology efficiency innovation and the fact that we can produce a lot more with the same level of inputs now mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. compared to 10, 20, 30 years ago. But I think there's another uh, element to it as well, which I, I believe is important, which is that when you look at consumption, household consumption in, in America, firm consumption in America, you'll see that they're consuming much less goods than it mm-hmm. did in the past. And, and I suppose this is a pretty sort of important part in explaining yes. why you have seen sort of this shift in in or sort of the the sort of why deindustrialization may not actually be about foreigners taking advantage of America. It may right. actually be sort of that Americans just changed the consumption pattern and they don't they don't sort of demand uh, the same level of goods anymore.
1: Yeah, I right. This is I think the great untold story of deindustrialization in the United States and abroad as well, that surely there is global competition, surely import competition has replaced some labor and some economic output in the United States. That's undoubtedly true. But leaving the job aside, if you look at the United States manufacturing sector's share of total economic output, of course, it's a straight line down uh, or, you know, trend downward. The issue, though, is that that trend is occurring in most industrialized nations. And it very closely tracks our increasing consumption of services. And it's less a story of de and much more a story of output continuing to go up, slowly but steadily, while Americans simply are getting richer. And as we get richer, uh, and this again occurs Really all over the world. There was a great study that looked at dozens of countries around the world and showed the same basic trend that as you get richer, we tend to consume more services as a share of our total budget. And because of that, we simply produce less as in manufactured goods, but only as a share of the economy. So basically, the pie is getting bigger where the manufacturing wedge of that pie stays basically roughly the same, a little bit bigger. And that's not a story, again, of de really at all. It's just simply about changing consumption patterns.
0: I think a quite telling part of it is as well that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I've ever come across industrial policy for the services sector. I don't, I think I've ever heard about a voluntary export restraint for services or a trade contingency matters being taken against the foreign services. They all tend to be sort of in in goods. And, and yeah. most of them, to be frank, are in sectors that we would call sunset sectors, where we have declining competitiveness in, in those firms that that um, undertake these measures. Right. Um, and and they
1: tend to be in consumables, things that Americans simply don't need to refresh every month, right? You know, in services, you know, you need to go get a haircut once a month, or at least pre-COVID you did, and uh, you need to get your car serviced and all these types of things. Well, you don't do that for a refrigerator. You know, you maybe buy one refrigerator, hopefully every 10 years, maybe longer. You Same same goes for a lot of goods. You know, outside of food and, and clothing, there's not a lot of consistent repeat purchases of goods and I think energy being another area where that's that's not true and and because of that because uh, of that kind of reality of consumption it is inevitable really that as we get richer the share of manufacturing as a share of our consumption and as our economy will just simply go down it's it's basically gravity and and that like I said is really ignored when we talk about deindustrialization, even though if you look at you know the charts in my paper and you look at around the world, it's basically happening everywhere.
0: All right. I think it's been extraordinarily useful to have this uh, conversation with you going through not just current developments in U.S. industrial and trade policy, but also looking back at historical examples of of industrial policies in the past. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us.